Welcome to the Basin Church Podcast. And as a church, our mission is to bring hope and wholeness through Jesus Christ. And no matter where you are and as you listen today, we hope that you find hope in Jesus and even move one step closer to being made whole. I have done pretty much everything in a church before I actually came here. And so I started off in middle school ministry, which I loved. I did that for nine years. After nine years, I jumped to high school. I did that for four years. I really enjoyed high school as well. And then the Lord kind of pulled me into doing children's for the last four years before I came here and working with adults and and situations and stuff like that, but kind of a family ministry. And so I did that. But there was a part in high school. And when I was in high school, there was this, we would go on this mission trip. And I've never been on a mission trip. I mean, you know, I've been in ministry for a while. Well, you don't really go on mission trips with middle school kids, right? That's a disaster. That's like herding cats. You're not going to go on a mission trip with kids. So um, first one I did, I actually went out and helped my uh, friend and helped a church do a VBS in Colorado when I was first there. But this one, we were not leaving the United States. We were leaving the United States and we were going to Belize. And the reason why we picked Belize is because there's no language barrier. They speak English. And it was just uh, easier, and we knew somebody down there who, again, was planting a church. So, like any good youth pastor, you're looking for the cheapest flights, you're looking for the cheapest transportation, and you're looking for the cheapest hotels. And so, we got into um, our cheapest transportation, and so here's, here was our tickets we were going to leave, okay? So we are leaving LA, LAX, at midnight, flying all the way to, so Red Eye. We're going Red Eye from LAX all the way to Miami, okay? So we're going LAX all the way to Miami, and this is like midnight. And I'm thinking, I am not a night person. Any of you night people, I'm not a night person. I can get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and be okay. I'm not a midnight to Miami was horrible. So since I'm kind of in control of the trip, guess who doesn't sleep? Me. So I don't sleep this whole flight from all the way to Miami. We get to Miami about six o'clock in the morning, which is Eastern time. So we fly in and then we've got to fly down from Miami. We've got to fly down to Belize. I'm thinking, oh, this is rough. Now, some of the people who were with me, they actually slept in the airport in Miami. Well, I didn't sleep. Like, I'm running on one hour of sleep. And if you've ever seen the Snickers commercial where the guy gets hangry and he's crabby, that was me. So we get in, we fly in, I maybe sleep another hour, and we get into Belize. And I'm trying to wrangle up kids and make sure they're okay because Belize City is known for trafficking people and it's kind of rough area. So we get them all together, we go to the hotel, and guess what I want to do? I want to sleep. So I lay down on my bed, and there was a man who went before us to kind of oversee the trip. And then maybe 45 minutes to 30 minutes in, he knocks on my door. And I'm with some other people. Okay, we're having a meeting. I'm like, no, we're not. We're not having a meeting. What are you talking about? Yeah, we're having a meeting. I go, I have not gotten any sleep. I just want to sleep. And I'm really crabby. And no, no, we're having a meeting. And I remember he leaves, and and I'm just, just human right here. I said, this is the stupidest thing I've ever done. 
I'm, I, I've had no sleep. I just want to go home. I've at my limits. And all my, the other leader's like, no, 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 it's going to be fine. I said, no, this is stupid. We're, I'm out of here. And I'm talking all this nonsense. Like, I am half awake. So I go in this meeting, and I sit down, and I'm not even paying attention. I'm just like this, like, you know, nodding off, like trying to pick this. And it was so, I was so crabby and so irritable. And the reason why I was irritable, obviously, I didn't have any sleep. But I was at my wit's end. Like, how dare you interrupt my sleep? I have not slept all the time, and now you want to have a meeting. And so I'm saying stuff. I'm at my, my limit. I'm maxed out, and I'm irritable. And the truth is this. Yeah, it's just a story of representation of, yeah, we do lose our patience. We do lose our limits. We have boundaries, and sometimes you get maxed out. And believe it or not, we all have limits, boundaries, and restrictions. And when those are pushed to the limits, we act and respond in a way we shouldn't respond and i still get made fun of for that trip believe it or not my leaders still make fun of me do you remember when you said you wanted to go home i said yes i do (laughs) but if you think about this whole thing when we lose uh and we max out our limits and our in our in our boundaries here's what begins to happen we lose patience and we lose self-control or we lose both and the reality is this is it happens all the time with each and every one of us and so when, when the way we respond when that happens is usually when our relatives stay too long or somebody overstays their welcome. We get irritable, don't we? We get irritable too when you're with your friends, when your friends just won't leave you alone and you want to, you know, just leave me alone. I want some space and they don't leave you alone. They don't get the hint. You're at your limit. You're at your limit too with your kids. And you're at your limit sometimes with your kids, especially if you have teenagers. And there's times if you don't have a teenager, you have those little little kids and they're toddlers. And you're like, I've said it enough and I've said it over and over and over again. And they just don't obey. And it's really heightened when you're in public. I mean, because the worst thing you want to do is you want to be humiliated in public. And so you're like maxed out and you're trying not to freak out. You're trying not to lose your cool. You're trying not to lose yourself, self-control. And so you're just, you're just holding it in because you're in public. But really inside, you're maxed out with your patience. And then you're also maxed out with your spouse. When they do that continual thing that bothers you over and over and over again. And then it's that pet peeve, and then it turns into, hey, would you stop to a full-blown fight, right? Because we lose our, our patience, we lose our self-control because our limits are stretched thin. But it doesn't happen there. It happens at work, doesn't it? If you're anything like me, you might go to work, and you're working your tail off, and you're a hard worker, and you look over, and you've got that other employee who's not doing anything. And you're like, how is this fair? And this person might even get more money than you. And you think, how is this fair? And you lose your patience and you lose your cool. And you try to like stuff it in, but you're at your limit. It's gone on for months and months and months. And it might be even your boss or someone you work for, right? They might just be incompetent. They probably can't even manage. You're thinking, well, if I was in charge, I would do things differently. And it's not like, you know, you're going to say it out loud and you might say it to other coworkers. But you do might go home and just kind of throw up on someone and say, I've had it. I'm irritated. I'm, I'm annoyed. My limits are stretched. But see, what about conflict? Think about it in terms of conflict, though. When you have conflict with people, 
usually we are at our limits as well. Because think about Peter goes to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? I'm at my limit. Give me a number. Because can you just imagine like Peter just thinking, because for some of us, when it comes to people just doing things, they do it over and over and over and over again. And we might be like Peter saying, I've had it. Like, give me a number so I don't have to forgive them anymore because they're continually going to do it. And so when it comes to conflict, we get maxed out too. How often do I have to forgive them? How often do I have to do this? And of course, Jesus answers them differently and basically says, forever. But we do. We, we have limits. We have our patience that gets worn thin. And we have boundaries. But think about this. What about God? Does God ever get stretched thin with his patience? Does he ever get to a point of a breaking point. Does he ever get maxed out with his limits of forgiveness? See, because for some of us, we think, okay, well, yeah, maybe he does because God is trying to teach me something or he's trying to give me a lesson or maybe God's trying to pay me back for something. So I'm not so sure. I mean, maybe God has worn out his patience and he's punishing me. But as we see today, that's not the truth. Because when we look at the story today, we're going to go through a man's whole story. And if anybody could get frustrated at any point, it was God. Anybody who had their, their limits stretched, their boundaries maxed out, their patience worn thin, it could have been God. But he responds differently than you and I. And so this, this story begins with a, with a little boy. He's probably a teenager. And he's a teenager, and he's got brothers. And while he's there, this prophet shows up to his house. Now, when a prophet would show up to your house, there was two things. It's either good news or it's bad news. Because either there's going to come destruction or he's got really good news for one of you. And so this prophet comes and he comes to the house and he's there and the prophet says, I've got good news. And so Samuel's the prophet and he comes and he comes to the father, the head of the household, and it's Jesse. And he says, hey, Jesse. The Lord has come today to anoint the next king of Israel. So the interesting thing is in how this worked was the way Jesse saw or who he thought was going to be picked versus who God thought was going to be picked. So Jesse obviously brings out the firstborn and the firstborn's tall and handsome and he says, surely it's going to be him. Samuel says, no, it is not him. And then they get the other ones, seven in all. Right before Samuel, nope, nope, no, no, not a chance, no, no. Seven guys, seven seven brothers. And then, then Samuel says this, okay, so is there anybody else? There's got to be somebody else in the house because the Lord has anointed somebody and they're not here. And, and Jesse goes, oh, yeah, 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 there, there's the youngest. But he's out tending the sheep. Okay, I'll wait. I got time. So he goes and he gets... David gets him from the pasture. He comes, smelling like sheep, probably dirty. And when Samuel looks at him, he says, this is the next king of Israel. And so what he does is he pulls out the big bottle of oil, pours it over David's head, anoints him, and says, you're the next king of Israel. And here's the interesting thing about David, an interesting thing about when you become king, you automatically assume the throne, don't you? I'm anointed king, I'm assuming the throne. So David assumes the throne. No. 
You know what David does? Hey, thanks. Walks about and tends the sheep. Now, I looked at that story a million times and I go, that is just so interesting. Because here's the thing about God. It, when it comes to God, there are times that we don't understand what God is doing. I mean, think about that. God has said, you are the next, next king of Israel. Oh, wait, wait, I'm not going to be on the throne. No, 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 go tend the sheep. So he walks back out and he tends the sheep. Now, for me, this is, this is really kind of a, a, a touching point and a, a turning point in my life because I remember in my life, I wanted to become a, a, a pastor in what I'm doing currently at this moment. And I, I did kids and I did all that stuff, like I told you before, but I really felt the Lord pulling me and tugging me to go be a lead pastor. And so I'm thinking, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm working for my dad. I'm working in California. I've been here for 14 years or long time. God, there's no way this is going to happen. No, trust me. And then I thought, okay, Lord, well, I'm feeling it and I want to leave, but, and this is all men, this is what we do, but you got to tell my wife. Right? My wife's got to be on board. Like, I can go and want to do what I think, but if she's not on board, there's no way this is going to work, God. So my wife goes and Sarah goes to a conference, and, and this is interesting. And speaking of the Lord uh, talking to people, when we're talking on Sunday night, the Lord has many ways to talk to people. And so she goes to this conference, and she can tell you it better than I can. But she has this vision. And a vision is, is where God speaks, but you're awake. Like, God also speaks in dreams, but he speaks in visions. So it's the only vision she's ever had. She's completely awake. She's worshiping, and this picture comes to her, and she sees me on stage somewhere. And she sees me preaching. And it's like she's not there, but she goes around the whole church and goes around the whole building, and she sees our kids. And our kids are lifting their hands and worshiping the Lord. And it was at that moment she's thinking, okay, all right, the Lord spoke to me. This is what we need to do. And of course, I'm coming, but she comes back and tells me, like, oh, yes, let's do this. Let's go right now. Right? But again, the Lord does things differently in his timing. And I got so impatient and so frustrated and so upset because all my friends were in their 30s. And I'm going into my 40s. And they've been pastoring for five, ten years. And I'm sitting here, Lord, this is, this is ridiculous. Like you've spoken, what is going on? And so I began to be frustrated. I became irritable. And I finally came to a point, and one of my friends said this, and he pointed me to this story, and he says, look, God's doing something with you. And he pointed me to this story, and he says, look, David went out, and he was anointed king, but his time had not come yet. So he went out to tend the sheep. And this is what he said to me. My sense, he said, you know, maybe the Lord's preparing you. Maybe you have to go back out to the sheep because the Lord's preparing you for something and he's working on you. And nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear, thanks, that's good news. Thank you. God's working on me. Who? yeah. Right? You don't. And I just remember going out there, but I finally came to a point. And I said, okay, Lord, whatever you want. And that's when the Lord began to move because he's on my life. And so I don't know if, like, for you, when it comes to that point, maybe if you're here and you're kind of like at a point saying, man, I, I just wish God was doing something or he was just moving. Let me just tell you this. Side note from what I'm talking about. God is working on you. And if you're tending to the sheep, tend to the sheep. Allow God to work. Allow God to do things. Even though he's spoken, he will be faithful and he will come true. 
Because he, it did come true for David. And it will come true for you. And I'm standing on the stage after a long time because of what the Lord did. So going back now, with all that as a side note, let me just go back to David. So David does not become king. The reason why he can't become king is because Saul is on the throne. And so he goes back tending the sheep. And through circumstances, God would begin to, to take him on a long journey from a shepherd boy all the way to king. But it wasn't as David planned. It wasn't like what he thought would happen or the direction it intended to go. So it was really interesting. After many circumstances and after killing Goliath, he goes and he starts playing for Saul and he plays his harp to sue Saul because it says an evil spirit was on Saul. But Saul was threatened by David. He knew he was going to be the next king, but he wanted his son Jonathan to be king, so he's threatened. And so he, he vows to kill David. He actually tries to kill him twice. And David goes on the run. So David, again, you're anointed king. I tend the sheep, and now I'm on the run? What is going on here? Like, I thought I was supposed to be king. And so he comes to this place, and as he's on the run, it will open up to, to Samuel uh, 21. And there's a place where David comes, and he begins to have this interaction with this priest. And in 1 Samuel 21, verse 1, it says this. It says, he comes, David comes to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech trembled when he met him, and he asked him, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? So this is the place where the tabernacle is located. Now, a tabernacle is the tent where the Ark of Covenant was, where the Lord's presence presided. So it was in this city, outside of Jerusalem. And so he comes, and the priest says, well, why are you alone? So he knows there's something off. What's going on here? He's kind of confused. Why? Why? Just kind of tell me help, me, help me put the pieces together here, David. And so here's how David responds. He says, the king sent me on a mission. And he said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. As for my men, I have told you to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. Now here's the interesting thing about this whole interaction. Is David lies. David's not on a mission. The king doesn't send him. He's hiding. He's fearful. He's on the run. His men are on the run. He's in need. But he lies to him. And so, again, the priest says, okay, well, um, I, have some, I have some bread here, but it's show bread, and it's very, you're supposed to be consecrated. There's a lot of rules, a lot of things, just, just but this is all I have, David, so you can have this. And then he gives David Goliath's spear that was taken when he killed Goliath. So he gives him a weapon, and he gives him food. Now, he doesn't know the story. He just takes David at his, at his word for it, that, that maybe the king didn't send him on a mission. He has no idea. But the lying, just like anything, and sinning has consequences. So, And these consequences would be disastrous. Because there was a guy that was there who saw David, and he saw him, and he reported back to Saul. And he saw that the priest gave him food, and the priest gave him a weapon. So he reports back to Saul because nobody wants them to help uh, uh, David out. No one Saul does not want anyone to aid his enemy. 
And so the priests do. So he reports back to Saul. Saul gets there, and and Saul begins to to do this. And and here's what he says. Instead of um, when he gets to the priests, he says, "Hey, did you help David?" Like he's he's on the run. They say, well, he's like, "No, no, no. I I thought he was sent on a mission." Like, we have no idea. We're not trying to aid your enemy. We would have told you about it. Like, believe us, we had no idea. He lied to us. And Saul's like, I don't believe you. You should have told me. And so here's what Saul begins to do. Instead of believing them, he says this. The king ordered the guards aside. This is 21 verse 17 in 1 Samuel. The king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priest of the Lord. So he says, okay, you kill him right now. Priests say, no, I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to kill the priest. I'm not going to kill the Lord. So obviously when somebody doesn't do what the king does, what's the king going to do? He's going to find someone else to do his bidding. So this here's what he does. He says, Then the king ordered Doag, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doag, the Edomite, turned and struck them down. And that day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod, which was kind of the thing the priests wore on their chest. And he said he also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priests, with its men and women, its children, its infants, its cattle, donkeys, and sheep. There was no one left alive. Destroys everybody. Kills everyone and everything. And when you begin to look at this, the only person who escapes is Ahimelech, the priest. He escapes, tells David, joins David's with his mighty men, and David says, you're safe because he's pursuing me as well. And he leaves. But the thing about David is this. This tragedy could have turned out differently. These people could not have died. But it happened because David lied. See, if he didn't lie and maybe told the truth, then perhaps these priests and these women and these infants and these cattle and the sheep would have lived another day. He would maybe not have wiped out the whole entire city. But his lying has consequences and it had a traumatic effect and that whole city was wiped out. And so when you begin to, to look at this, you begin to see that David is still supposed to be king. Like God could have said, okay, that's enough. You lied just like he did to Abraham. But he says, no, 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 no. I've anointed you king. I'm going to make you king. And yeah, you've, you've messed up, but it's still going to happen. And, and here's the thing about God's grace. He's going to see it come to fruition. But this is the thing that I want you to to understand, that God's grace isn't attached to the behavior of the one who receives it, but it's for the one who gives it. See, so it's not, the grace isn't attached because of David's behavior and the one who receives it, but it was God who gives it. And because God gave it, David had another chance. Because God gave it, he was still going to be king. Now, could have God been like, okay, you're done? Absolutely. You lied. You ate the showbread. 
did what we were not supposed to do, but God begins to give him grace. And so going back to Jonathan and Saul, Saul's still on the, on the throne. David's still on the run for his life. Saul and Jonathan go to battle, and they end up dying. Then who becomes king? David. David finally becomes king, right? And he becomes king, and when he's king, there's a point in his life when he's king, and he's in his palace, and he's like, well, wait a second, I'm in this palace in this nice place, and God, you are in this tabernacle, this tent. There's something wrong here, God. And so God, you, I want to build you a temple. I want to build you a place where you can be a, a great place. And so Nathan goes to David and says, Nathan's a prophet at the time, and he says, yeah, do whatever you want. But then the Lord kind of slows him down and says, whoa, Nathan, here's what comes to him in a dream and says, Nathan, here's what you need to tell David. And so here's what he says. He says in 2 Samuel 7, he says, go and tell my servant David. Right? This is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelled in a house from the day I brought up the Israelites out of Egypt. He says, I have been moving from place to place with the tent as my dwelling. And wherever I moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers, get this, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, have you not built me a house of cedar? Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So David, I'm not asking for anything. I've gone tent to tent. My presence has been with Moses from the beginning out of Egypt. It's gone from place to place to place. I've never said to any person that I've anointed or made king or commanded them over my people to build me a house. Look, I don't need a house. I don't need that. But he says to David, he makes another promise to David. He says, David, you're not going to make me a house, but guess what? You're going to have a kingdom and you're going to have a legacy. And God makes this promise, despite him lying, despite him kind of messing up again, the Lord still makes him king, but then the Lord says, look, I'm going to make your name great. And chances are you have heard of King David before he walked in this day. And you've heard of King David because God made his name great. And here's what it says in verse uh, 8 and 9 following in 2 Samuel. He says, now then, tell my servant David, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture. Again, I took you from tending the flock. I took you as a little shepherd boy, teenager. I appointed you rule over my people. And I've been wherever you have gone. And I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And here's this promise. I will make your name great like the names of the the, the men, greatest men on earth. And despite what David is thinking, despite what he does, God makes his name great. Because when you talk about kings of Israel, they talk about the great king of David. Despite his mistakes, despite his failures, despite what he's done, they talk about King David. And chances are, you've probably heard of his famous son. See, because God made his name great, God made him a legacy as well. And chances are, you've heard of his son named Solomon. The greatest man, the wisest man, excuse me, who ever lived. And he was David's son. And so God kept his promise despite what he did, despite his failure, God still began to make him king and make him great. But lying wasn't his only mistake. 
Because for David, he made a huge mistake in the springtime. In the springtime, the scripture says that when kings go to war, David was at home. See, kings would lead the battle. They would lead the battlefront for their, their, um, for their uh, army behind them. They would be in battle. But David decides that he's going to be home. And when he's at home, there's this woman who begins to bathe outside. Doesn't really know what she's doing. She's just bathing. And, and David's on his palace and he sees her and he looks down and he, man, she, he sees she's beautiful. That's not his wife. And so there's a moment in David's life where the temptation comes and the lust comes and he could have said no and he could have just heeded it. He could have turned away, but he didn't. David, a man after God's own heart. He looks at her, doesn't say no, and the rest is history. And any time in those days, whatever a king wanted, a king got. No questions asked. So he, David says, summon me that woman, bring her to me. He brings her to the palace, and the rest is history. He ends up sleeping with her. And to make things worse, he gets her pregnant. Now you're thinking, well, well, wait a second, I mean, this is, I can't believe this. And so David's thinking, well, I can't have this. What are the people going to think? I'm the king. And I slept with a married woman, so now I'm an adulterer. So what am I going to do? And he's thinking, well, well, I'll just send her back. And, and he, he devises this plan. He says, well, maybe I'll have her husband come back from the battlefield. And I'll have him come back and sleep in his own bed. And nobody will ask questions. But I'm thinking, here's what I thought when I read this. I'm thinking, well, wait a second, David. What if the kid turns out to be like you? You're not going to hide it from anybody. So you can have all your plans you want, but what happens if the kid ends up looking like you? Like you can't, you can't hide that. So David, David thinks, okay, well, I'm going to make this plan up. And so he calls back the husband. The husband's name is Uriah. He calls him back and says, okay, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go home and sleep at home. And Uriah says, there's no way I can do this. There's no way I can sleep in my bed when my men are out there fighting. And David thinks, oh, my plans are foiled, but he's not going to give up. So he gets Uriah drunk. He gets him a little tipsy. I'm thinking, oh, he's a little tipsy. I mean, maybe he'll be a little more romantic. No, he sleeps out on the ground outside by the city gates and doesn't go home. And so David thinks, well, my, my plan is ruined, but that's not going to stop me. I'm going to continue on with my plan. So what he does is David says to the commander of the Israelites in the army, he says, this is what I want you to do. Put Uriah in the front lines. And when they attack, everyone step back so he dies. This is the king. The anointed king of Israel. The one that killed Goliath. The one that God has his hand on. He's now an adulterer and now he's plotting murder. And so what happens is that's exactly what happens. They back off and he dies. Uriah dies. And then Bathsheba, who is the, the wife, she mourns. And then after she's done mourning, guess what? David takes her as her wife. And thinks he got away with it. Thinks he got away with it. And at this time, you're thinking, okay, I, I've got it. I'm done. My plan worked. But God knows. You might be fooling people, but God knows. And ultimately, David would know that God would know. And, and Nathan would know. 
Thinks he gets away with it, but God knows, and Nathan would know. Nathan the prophet would know. So Nathan comes, and he comes to David, and he says, Hey, David, let me tell you a little story. And David goes, Okay, tell me a story. He says, There's this rich man, and he comes in, and this rich man comes to town, and this rich man has a, has a sheep, and and he doesn't sacrifice his own sheep. Guess what he does? He goes to this other man, this other other man who loves this sheep, who raised this sheep, who loves it dearly. And he takes that sheep from that man and he sacrifices his sheep instead of his own sheep. And the scripture says that David is angry and he's mad. And David goes, that man should die. And Nathan looks over at him and goes, you are that man. And you know he's been caught. He knows his sin is found out. And the thing that David does is he repents. He says, I made a mistake before the Lord. And here's what Nathan says. He says this in, in Second um, uh, Samuel 12, 12. He says, this is what the Lord says. Out of your household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one of you one of them who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wife in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this in broad daylight before all of Israel. It's consequence. And that's exactly what happened. Absalom, who is David's son, sleeps with his wife in broad daylight. Absalom brings calamity and disgrace on David. He even kicks him out of Jerusalem for everyone to see in broad daylight. And what came to pass was what David did in secret was known in public. Here's a, a man of God, anointed king, messes up royally, and there's consequences. And he does repent, and if you think about it, murder is punishable by death. And here's what Nathan says. He says, yeah, you've repented. And if there's any time where that if God could be stretched at his limits, if there's any time where God didn't have any patience, if there's any time that the grace of God could have been stretched and maxed out, David, at this point, could have done it. But God isn't maxed out. He's not stretched. And his grace knows no limits. And so here's what he says in the following verses in verse 13 and 14. Nathan says, The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you've shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son that is born to you will die. And here is where the Lord kind of makes this thing. He says, Grace and discipline go to go together. And not one prevents the other from taking place. See, God has grace, but there's consequences. And yeah, David should have died. He's an adulterer. He's a murderer. He should have died. He doesn't die. He repents, and God has grace on his life. And God has grace on him still and makes his name great. But the consequences are Absalom does what is in secret, does it in public. And the son he had that was pregnant with Bathsheba for the adultery, the Lord takes him. 
and he doesn't let him live. And the son dies. Right when she gives birth, the son dies. Now is the Lord. There is grace, but there's also consequences. But here's what David understood. And here's what you and I understand. When you look at this story and you, and you begin to look at this, here's what you understand about God's grace. When it comes to God's grace, there are no limits. There are no limits to God's grace. He's the one that gives it. He's the one that dishes it out. And when he comes to us, there is nothing that we have done that God will not forgive us or will not give grace for. See, all of us, no one's perfect in here. All of us have made mistakes. I don't care if you're an adult or if you're a teenager. We all make mistakes. We all go our own way. And there's nothing that we have done to deserve God's grace. And for David, he learned that. Because really what should have happened is David should have died. He should have been replaced by another king. But God made a promise. And God held upheld his promise. And see, for you and I, we might not be adulterers and we're not murderers, but we've sinned and we messed up. And for some of us, it could have been last night. It could have been at 8 o'clock this morning. See, we, we've, we've messed up and for, for a lot of us, we feel that and we go on through life and, and yet the Lord forgives us, but we're still weighted down with guilt and shame and it's heavy and we don't know how to go further, and we're thinking, well, how can the Lord, I've done so many bad things, or I, I, I spoke to my wife like this, or I treated my kids like this, or I just kind of did this, or I decided to do something I shouldn't have done, and we've all in that moment, we've lapsed, and we've gone, and we've done what our flesh says that is good, and we bought into our flesh instead of God's way, and we're in the, and then sometimes we get so overwhelmed by the guilt and the shame, we go, how can God forgive me? And I don't deserve this, and I don't deserve his grace. And you know what? You're correct. You don't, and I don't. But that's not how the Lord operates. He doesn't operate like that. The Lord is gracious and merciful, and he forgives. And if he can forgive David for being an adulterer and a murderer, he can forgive you for the things you've done. And God can bestow grace on you. See, it's not by the behavior that God's grace is. It's by him who dispenses it. And for a lot of us, the other thing is we, we have to understand is that we are a lot of times unfaithful to the Lord, but the Lord is faithful. That when we're unfaithful, God is faithful and to his promises. And he promises this in, in 1 John 1, 9. He says he's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God is faithful to cleanse you, to forgive me, to restore me back to right relationship because that's what God wants. But here's the thing. We're not off the hook. What I mean by that is you're not off the hook. See, there might be consequences that you have to live with. Sure, God forgives. He's gracious and merciful. But there still might be consequences. Because for some of you, you know this to be true. There's people who are not talking to you because of choices you've made. You have torn relationships with people because of the decisions you've made. Does God forgive and is God gracious? 100%. But you're still living with the consequences of your decision. 
And for others of you, there's something might be ripped away from you. Something so dear to you got ripped away, but it's because of your there's consequences. And see, for, for others of us, there might just be things that need to happen and forgiveness might be, be need to take place and we're hoping for forgiveness and all we're receiving is bitterness. And yes, God does forgive and God is gracious, but you still might have to repair relationships and repair some of the damage that you have done. And if in your, you're in that spot, because I guarantee you for, for David... The son died. There was consequences. Absalom makes a disgrace, and he's a train wreck for David. And for some of us, there might be consequences. And here's what I would do and say to you, is I would surrender to the Lord, because the Lord is a, he is a God of reconciliation, and he's a God of restoration. And he doesn't want you to live like that, and he, you might have to go through that, and there might be consequences, but I would just surrender to him and say, God, I need this reconciled. I need this restored because God is a God, a redemptive God, a restoration and redemption. And that's what he wants for you and I. And finally, here's the last thing is you can't neglect. You can't neglect what God has commanded. You, you just can't. See, for some of us, we just because God extends grace doesn't give us an excuse to sin. Just because he extends grace and mercy and forgiveness doesn't give us an excuse to stand. Look, we're all in this boat. I've done it. You've done it. We just kind of run back to the Lord and we're like, okay, Lord, I'm so sorry for what I've done. And we kind of empty ourselves out. And then he goes, okay, I forgive you. And you kind of move on. And then you do it again. And then it's really like you've never changed and you've never made adjustments. And we have to make adjustments in our life. See, Jesus didn't die on the cross so you and I could play games. He died on the cross so we could have a right relationship with him. And so the best thing for all of us and our best option is to quit playing the game and to obey. Because here's the thing about obedience. It matters. Obedience matters to the Lord. And it doesn't matter if anybody else is, not, is doing it. We need to do it. I don't care how old you are. Obedience matters. And the thing about obedience, and God's very clear about this, that obedience precedes blessing. If you want the hand of God on your life, if you want blessing on your life, obedience must come first. And so, bring it all back for you and I. Some of you are like, I can't even wrap my mind around this grace thing, or maybe you can. But God wants to do something in your life and through your life, and he wants to forgive you he wants to bring you back to right relationship so we need to stop playing the games and start being obedient because here's the thing if you and i were god david's story would turn out completely different wouldn't it because i'd be like you're an adulterer <laughs> yeah give me that crown right and if he was a murderer you know what i would say well eye for an eye tooth for a tooth you're, you're, you're a dead man we're gonna hang you i don't know but see, God doesn't operate like you and I do. You know what we operate on? We operate on revenge. We operate with, this is what you did, and you must pay. And God's not like that. God's story was different for David, and it was different for, for him. See, God showed grace to David, and he kept a promise to what? A promise breaker. Think about that. God made a promise to make him king, make his name great. 
to David who broke the promise and broke the law of God. And I don't know where you are today, but here's what I, I, I want for you, and here's what the Lord wants for you. He wants you to understand that His grace has no limits. So I don't know if you've messed up. I don't know if you're walking your own way. I don't know if you kind of put on a smiley face and show up to church, but inside you're just living completely different. Here's what God wants to do for you. He wants to restore you. Thanks for listening. And if you would like more information on our church or you'd like to visit us in person, you can go to basinchurch.org. And as always, we hope this content helps you on your faith journey.